Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today in our last podcast of the year by Bradley Gerrard, news editor. How are you doing, Bradley? I'm good. I've got a bit of a cold, so I'm sorry if I sound a bit funny to the listeners. I'll try not to cough directly in your no, ear. No, don't cough at me. Uh, and uh, Ian Smith, how are you? Not too bad. How are you doing, John? Not too bad. I've been here for a couple of weeks. Been uh, handling it all brilliantly in, uh, in my absence, I hear. Yes. Hey, <laughs> good. No need for false modesty. Um, okay, right. So, last issue of the year, last podcast of the year. Actually, it's not the last issue of the year. No, it's the have, penultimate, isn't it? It is the penultimate. We have uh, another issue coming out on the 30th of December, which I'll be working on next week. But it feels like the last issue of the year because it's the biggie that we do before we break up for Christmas. It's uh, a bumper with a Christmas jumper bump, on the front. It's a bumper issue with a Christmas jumper. It's a beautiful jumper. Uh, where do I buy one? So, double issue, lots and lots of features looking at what we can expect in the year ahead from various asset classes, equities, uh, European equities, American equities, uh, bonds, property, the lot. But let's start with the news. We haven't, we're not, obviously not, we can't get the entire team in here to talk about this stuff, but I guess we can kind of summarise it as we talk through this week's news because most of it's related. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, uh, the big story in um, seven days that came in the sort of middle middle of the day yesterday um, and chimes with the feature that I actually wrote um, about M&A. Basically, there's two potential bids for Punch Taverns. And, yeah, yeah, and, strange. Yeah, it is strange. And Punch, Punch, like Enterprise, they're very, very similar businesses. They um, very much overextended themselves pre-credit crisis and were very much hit when, when the credit crisis, you know, struck. Um, because and, they'd overextended <clears throat> themselves in terms of their estates. Yeah, they were very highly indebted they're, they're sort of the, the credit boom you know, they certainly sort of personified that um, and so obviously when things went sour they were really badly hit had to sell off an awful lot of their estates they're still selling off parts of their estate I mean Punch has still got about 400 pubs it wants to sell and that's in spite of it already apparently finishing a strategic disposal program so you know th- there's there's they're coming out of repair mode. Still got lots of debt as well. Yeah, a lot Have of it, se- even though they've renegotiated that. Yeah, a lot of it's securitized. So the, the the kind of the the attraction, I suppose, is that yes, they still have a lot of debt, enterprise more so than punch, um, but it is securitized against obviously a um, an estate of properties, which is is the value of which I, th- I believe I'm right in saying for both companies is greater than the amount of debt they have. That's the kind of the the sort of the the flaw, if you if you will, for for the, the investment case. But the bids are interesting. One come from Heineken and one's, yeah. and one's come from a chap called Alan McIntosh who is a Punch co-founder. Now Heineken actually does own uh, 1100 pubs and bars in the UK already. I didn't know this. I didn't uh, know yesterday. Their bid is slightly lower at 174p and Mr McIntosh's bid is at 185p so I would suggest Punch is going to be bought. I mean you've got two bidders potentially f- fighting it out so yeah it's a very interesting development for a company that's been very hard push to get itself on the sort of straight and narrow post-credit crisis. Yeah, absolutely. could come as a relief to some long-suffering shareholders, I would imagine. The stock rose about, when I was writing seven days, it was up about 36 37% yesterday. Wow. Um, let's continue on the M&A theme, because towards the end of last week, we obviously had the Sky news. Indeed, yeah. And again, that's been an interesting one, because it was a bid that the Murdochs tried to make just before the phone hacking scandal uh, kicked off. And what that ended up meaning was that the, the bid was so unpopular 
that actually it ended up not happening at all. So there's been a bit of a sort of five year or so, I guess, hiatus. And um, uh, people who watch Sky and watch um, like watch the stock, not just the TV, um, and watch 21st Century Fox as a business as well, um, the sort of I guess there was a bit of a suggestion something might happen when James Murdoch became um, was put back on the on the board um of of sky which he had stepped down from previously um when he came back on last year there was you know people in the market thinking oh okay this is this is significant this could mean something and and now here we are it, it did mean something it means that you know fox is um you know looking to buy sky and this one looks like it's much more likely to happen than the previous attempts that's the kind of general view yeah i mean there's there's less well depends on your point of view but there's less immediate scandal i guess facing um the newspaper part of mr murdoch's empire um it wasn't just the scandal though last time right it was the media plurality grounds of having um you know one person or one group owning so much of the uk media landscape so a big question is how much has that media plurality issue changed now at that point i think that um murdoch offered to spin out sky news because sky news that the independence of sky news as a broadcaster and obviously plays a great contribution in our um uh, popular media um is something that regulators care about dearly. So the question is how much that media plurality angle changed. Now, the ownership of the business has actually changed. That's something that Theron gets into in his piece. So maybe that question has... Do you think it's changed a little bit? Well, yeah, and also what's interesting is that Sky recently bought um, the company that owns Talk Sports. So there's there's a sort of... The concerns about media plurality obviously it weren't there with that deal. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there does seem to be a bit more of... Um, or a bit less, I should say... Um, initial opposition to this bid i think some people might like the price to be a little bit higher um but then that's probably always the case if it Um, does go through i mean i wrote about kind of concentration uh in last week's issue and it would be another example of that kind of vertical integration of businesses yes they already owned a big stake but if it's if there's the creation of this kind of bigger business total ownership of sky then it'd just be another example where yes you could probably make the media plurality argument because of some of the separate parts of the business but you've created yet another kind of media giant and what does that mean ultimately for the kind of you know uh the plurality of voices that we see in the public debate i think i think certainly like post leverson and with with some more things coming out from that um and the the people that were obviously very supportive of leverson i think you know you, you will hear a bit of a political outcry about this but leverson was a flop ultimately the recommendations haven't been taken forward a lot of the different areas of the press including financial times have kind of gone in different ways in terms of the regulators that they've taken on um so yeah yeah you could just make the argument that um that that case has been lost i I did I think it's more likely to go through this time. And I think because of the changes they've made within News Corporation um, or the wider group, and also because of, as you say, the um, the unpopularity of the group is much lower at this point. Yeah, big companies just keep getting bigger. Uh, they get their way in the end. I mean, actually, you know, talking of uh, sort of the regulation of, of the communication sector, one of the uh, stories that I noticed this week was the, the report that came out regarding the UK's uh, mobile telephony infrastructure basically saying that it was crap i have to say i listened to a great thing on i listened to a great thing on radio 4 yesterday where they had their um technology correspondent um in in somewhere like watford or something like stood still on a train platform calling into the studio on on using 4g using uh, skype i think it was and they also had somebody on a moving train in romania 
and the line on the moving train in Romania was better than the one with somebody stood probably a couple of hundred miles away. It's remarkable. I can well believe it. And, you know, my journey home, I think there's at least four, uh, you know, not, not short dead spots. You know, one of them is, you know, passed into Essex folklore, the Shenfield Cuts. You don't get a mobile signal for at least three minutes as you pass <laughs> through that area. I mean, it is, it is appalling. One could s- suggest that this is a result of consolidation, l- removing the imperative to invest in the infrastructure and the lack of uh, regulatory oversight to make sure we keep up with, with our, you know, competitive nations. Exactly right. And yeah, that again was one of the topics I got into in this piece, because one of the things that the consolidated businesses, these big giants that we have to deal with now, um, they promised to government infrastructure investment, but obviously they are not um, incentivized to you know invest in, in order to drive competition when they have more kind of quasi-monopolistic um, control over... Which, which goes sector. back to the, off, uh, the open reach debate that we've exactly right. on the last couple of weeks. Uh, so they offer just enough to try and keep the regulator off their back and the jury's still out uh, on that one, whether they've managed to kind of keep open reach's cash flows within the business. But they've made just enough promises on infrastructure to keep the status quo uh, in, in the interest of the company... But obviously, as an actual user of those businesses, um, you, the consumer doesn't stand to benefit from the high concentration in some of these industries. I mean, it's, it's quite interesting in light of some of the recent promises made by Philip Hammond at the Autumn Statement, you know, one of which was that uh, there would be significant investment in the UK's digital infrastructure. You know, those sort of claims I always take with a pinch of salt because it's not the government that will ultimate, ultimately be responsible for delivering that infrastructure. It's companies like BT and Sky and uh, yeah, Vodafone. Um, and yeah, where's the where's the incentive? Where's the pressure to make them do that? So, you know, it does beg the question, given that these are now kind of firm promises to help uh, improve the nation's productivity, will more pressure be applied uh, to improve this infrastructure? It's hard to see what pressure can be applied that hasn't already been applied this year by MPs. So I, I could understand anyone's cynicism on that point. At the same time, I suppose we still have the prospect of the legal separation of OpenReach from BT, just on that point. Um, and also, there's the, speaking to people that work in competition um, consultancy, they say that there is the potential that they make it so difficult for BT to continue to run OpenReach that it's really forced to just do a proper separation of OpenReach um, and that would in- introduce some more competition into that market. But yeah, when it comes to um, mobile data as well, yeah, it's hard to see exactly what pressure politicians can apply that hasn't already been applied, short of you know a, a more substantial kind of breaking up of the market. So I heard uh, someone speaking this week about uh, the idea of UK roaming. So, so actually where you can can actually flip between networks according to which is giving you the coverage you require that might you know accelerate investment by some of the some operators who are perhaps not as uh, as comprehensive in their coverage in some areas you know but there are ways to to perhaps do this um but hey infrastructure the bane of our lives especially if you've been trying to get to work on southern rail this week none of us have the pleasure no thankfully uh, <laughs> we're all okay i think one one person does use southern but they're uh, they're getting in early and leaving early yeah it's it's a, it's a bit of a nightmare my my train uh, company looks pretty uh, pretty brilliant in comparison although it is uh, i understand the fourth most complained about uh, rail operator in the uk right now okay what else have we got going on in the news the fed not in the magazine we missed that no, we didn't that- miss it we couldn't write about it. The magazine had already gone to the printers. But uh, yeah, as expected, 25 basis points increase in the Fed's rate. But the bigger news was that they are now forecasting three rate rises of the same amount in 2017. Um, and previously, people had expected two. Um, so that 
obviously has had an impact in the market. We've seen uh, the gold price come off a bit. The relative attractiveness of gold has been uh, reduced, so the gold miners' um, stocks have fallen. Um, We've seen the uh, yields in the uh, government bond market uh, increase as you would expect them to do so um, as, is, as is the intention the big question is how will the, mar- the equity market over a longer period of time respond to this now the last time they tried this in uh, a year ago um, the equity market ended up kind of falling out of bed there are other problems out with it but obviously the global economy at that point was not seen as resilient enough for them to kind of push through further interest rate rises. Now, this time around, the US economy is quite strong um, and um, the Fed chair uh, was quite keen to play down the impact of a Donald Trump presidency on this, but to talk about the strength of the US economy. But there is still the question of how this rate rise will impact on uh, the global economy and therefore whether they'll be able to um, pursue those rate rises that they've promised next year. Indeed, I, I think it's a huge question. You know, I think a lot, of, uh, a lot is being assumed uh, about the direction of interest rates. Um, and I really don't think we know all the answers. I mean, what, what we've kind of uh, tried to do in our coverage is sort of Play, suggest how these scenarios might play out and how you might want to manage your exposure to them. Um, you know, bonds, there are ways uh, of, 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 you know, avoiding the potential worst impacts of, uh, of these rises um, if you still want to hold bonds. Um, so, yeah, it, it is interesting. Uh, a lot still up in the air, which is kind of the, the thrust of my editorial. I mean, you know, Trump is the Trump trade, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sent markets through the roof. Um, we really have no idea how much of what he's promised he'll be able to deliver and uh, you know how that actually does translate into economic activity. Yeah, and I think people have overestimated over the past couple of years where yields can get to, you know, how much upward pressure can be put on yields. And we keep talking about historic uh, low guilt yields for a reason. Is that, the yeah, the market um, keeps kind of regressing to the mean in that respect so um it's going to be really interesting to see yeah what which of his spending plans um he's going to be able to get past um his republican colleagues who care passionately about the level of public spending and obviously he's made lots of promises on kind of tax cuts um but also infrastructure spending vast program how much of that will he be able to push through so although miss yellen was trying to kind of downplay the trump aspect clearly that's all that everyone in the market is talking about. Mm. They clearly want to see what is going to happen um, and how that might impact. And the emerging markets today um, haven't, you know, started to uh, slide just yet. Um, but key will be the impact of kind of further interest rate rises on emerging market debt. Now, I, in my piece for the Christmas feature, looked at at the beginning of this year, um, RBS put out a note, the rates team put out a note saying the bears have killed Goldilocks, sell everything. These are the things that are going to kind of collapse the global economy in 2016. Now, you can turn around and say, oh, they, they didn't come to pass. But actually, a lot of the things that they talked about as being very negative for the global economy, the amount of debt, the continuation of kind of easy money via, via quantitative easing, those things are still in the market now. So those, some of those threats that they talked about are still there although obviously the commodities market has gone in a different way and china the china concerns that they had haven't progressed in the way that they have projected for now for now so but there is a, you could almost write a similar note for 2017 if you wanted to be pessimistic about the ability of the global economy to reset itself in monetary terms oh, but it does seem a bit like wishful thinking a lot of uh, a lot of what's happening in the markets at the moment because yeah i agree with the point about you know indebtedness there, there, is, there is a huge amount of debt sloshing around the system, both both personal debt and uh, and public debt. 
in every country. I mean, we we had stats out from the Bank of England recently, didn't we? Record high credit card debt, I think it was, and you've got higher debt levels in the US. You've got very high debt levels in China, of which perhaps people aren't even really sure about where they are. You know, actually, officially, you have figures, but there's a, a big problem with sort of dark lending and that sort of thing over there. So absolutely, no, I, th- I think I think we ought to be circumspect in uh, assessing what's really going to happen uh, in respect of Trump's presidency next year uh, and how that how that affects the markets. Anyway, lots of uh, lots of interpretation of that in uh, in the features this week. Um, one thing we know Trump isn't a fan of, and that is the idea of climate change, which is something you've written about this week, Bradley, because um, this is something that's come out from the Bank of England, I understand it. And it seems that they are now flying in the face of a very strong lobby in America, which does not care one jot about the idea of climate change. It's not just the Bank of England, although Mark Carney is very much involved. Um, is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which is part of the G20. Effectively, in a nutshell, they're saying that companies now are not properly forecasting or analysing, or if they are, they're not disclosing that, um, the impact on their businesses of climate change. And they need to. Okay. Well, it's a nice idea. My personal view would be, how the hell do you forecast for climate change, given it's essentially unknowable one presumes that it is very difficult however you know we do have obviously data about how um, how much the world's um, you know, the temperatures have risen in past years we have projections about how that might change and obviously there are companies who will be um, you know, like a, let's take an insurance company for instance I mean you know global warming will have a very very tangible impact on that type of business an oil company you know, there's this big move towards alternative fuel. So they need to be kind of in public letting us know what their plan is and if they really think or uh, how they think that a move to, say, in an oil company's um, example, how a move to use of greater um, amount of alternative fuels will impact their business. So it's things like, like that. I think the point is it's less how, you know, global warming in total on a net basis will affect your company and more how will the measures that the world has agreed to to combat global warming to keep it below a certain percentage um, has agreed to but one of the biggest countries in the world is likely to ignore yes that's true but the uk obviously is kind of signed up to this agreement but and we might have, also decide it will ignore it when everyone else decides they're going to ignore it that that is true of any international treaty but at the same time, um, you can you you have a responsibility to your shareholders. Lawyers argue, and it was before this we've had quite a lot of pressure from institutional shareholders and from kind of legal action groups. And I wrote about this earlier this year to say you need to say this is just a fin- this is a financial risk now. It's not just kind of bit of fluffy ESG, you know, environmental and social governance policy where you've got to kind of make some uh, blasé statements in your annual report. It's actually saying what is the financial impact on you, especially commodities companies, of not being able to get all of your stuff out of the ground because we have to um you know reduce our carbon footprint as a country or you know as a world um but yeah so it's more what's the financial impact on you of those measures that have been agreed but to your point those measures might be rolled back there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment i mean it's not just that i mean you know companies have a lot of reporting overheads on them already um you know a company like say shell uh, it has a, it's, a, it's a huge business, actually, just managing its its financials, managing the output, managing the communication to shareholders. And, you know, another layer, is it helpful? Does anyone actually read it? Is it confusing the picture more? Well, it would be very important, though, because if, they have, if they're modelling that they have 
you know, X well, Y well, and Z well, and they're going to produce, you know, X amount of oil, Y and Z amount of oil. But, is it, but is actually, it, is... in 20 years' time, we're not going to be able to pump the amount of oil they would be pumping in that year. Then that's obviously going to have a financial impact but on the my, company. My, okay, I'm playing devil's advocate. Is it their job to tell their investors what might be happening 20 years in the future under a certain set of circumstances which might change? You know, is that not a risk that's inherent in the business? And I'm pretty sure it's a risk they themselves do outline. And, and to agree, and yeah, in support of your point, um, Shell. Uh, for example, have said they kind of they don't buy into this stranded assets thesis. And if you actually look at the reserves that some of the major oil companies have, if you compare that to the amount of assets that Saudi Arabia has, it's a vastly bigger pool, literally. So, actually, you can probably overstate the extent to which you kind of our listed oil players will have to, you know leave some of those assets in the ground but this is very much an area of life debate and something that alex newman our commodities writer has written about um but yeah I, I think you can argue it both ways but i do accept your point that if it's another 10 pages or five pages on an annual report that is already 100 pages um how much credence will be given to that by investors how much of an impact will that have and that f- the fallback of well it's got to be in the annual report and then you're covered you know, is is problematic. I think what investors need to do is to be pre- pressuring both institutional and private shareholders is to be pressuring these companies on. Okay, what? Well, how are you affected by this kind of lower carbon world? Do yeah, you think absolutely. that's basically impossible to do? Well, no, no. I, I mean, well, funnily enough, one of the things I've been studying in my MA recently is climate change and the history of climate change and how we actually understand climate change and how we measure it uh, and what what affects it. And, and how we kind of uh, understand our vulnerabilities to it and how we uh, respond to those vulnerabilities. And, you know, what's become increasingly clear to me whilst doing this is actually, despite the fact that yeah, our understanding of how the planet works and the weather systems work and whatnot is much more sophisticated than it was even 20 years ago, we still don't know all the answers. You know, there are the, the way that systems interact, like El Nino, for example, you know, what impact has that had on global temperatures in the past couple of years? You know, is that a temperature? or a long-term effect. My point is, is that it's staggeringly complex. So to then boil that down into um, a set of kind of stock answers that a company is given to expect, uh, you know, I, I just, it doesn't feel credible. I think that's a perfectly logical argument. But um, I guess climate change is such a huge issue. And um, to, to not, for companies, especially ones that are, um, very um, involved in the amount of you know sort of emissions that we produce. Uh, you could argue that it would be a dereliction of duty if they're not to start considering this and at least trying in some way to inform shareholders about the, albeit potential and difficult to maybe sort of comprehend, but yeah. impacts on the businesses. There, there are lots of things businesses don't know about the future, like everything. And, yeah. You know. So I mean, it's just another thing. You could argue, well, why bother? It's just another thing, but it is something, particularly with commodities companies, that's so inherent to their business models that yeah i think it's it, it, it will you know the, the pressure on them to do it i think will will increase but my view is also that those companies you know in the oil and gas industries and the mining industries and you know, power generation they don't they're not derelicting that duty already you know they, they are quite open with their shareholders in you know the climate related pressures that they face now now yeah 
Well, that's the only ones they can address. Yeah. And they are, I mean, they no, are. no, no, I mean in the sense that they are open now about them. It's, you know, they've gone on a similar path to the kind of tobacco industry. It's like now they're very much accepting of the negative impacts. I but, think they've been a lot quicker to respond than the tobacco industry was. I mean, you know, these are modern, it's a modern issue. It's yeah. a modern understanding that wasn't there, you know, 20, 30 years ago in the same way. Tobacco, you know, I mean, they knew for quite some time that uh, I don't think they've been covering it up in the way that it's been proven that the tobacco industry certainly no, avoided actually facing up some of the r- yeah. results of its products and also big oil companies are you know, they, they are changing they are looking at alternative fuels they are investing in these so a very simple thing like that the, the amount more they're going to be investing in um you know alternative fuels in whatever financial year uh, that is effectively a, a tangible thing they can demonstrate to show how they're mitigating the potential effects of just relying on you know pure oil yeah indeed anyway for now buy oil <laughs> <laughs> i mean a uh, big big piece in uh in the issue on commodities actually following up on alex's piece last week but yeah i mean you know been a great year for commodities uh after two terrible years uh which just goes to show sometimes buy when there is blood on the streets but yeah something that we possibly expect to continue into the new year yeah i mean We've been waiting for a year when the contrarian play on commodities would pay off, and some people thought it might be 2015. Well, it turned out it was 2016, uh, and you could see that. I looked at the kind of total return figures across the FTSE All Share, and it looks like it's been a brilliant, absolutely brilliant year for the FTSE All Share compared to the historic average, the kind of real total return that you get from the equity market. Um, but, FTSE All Share, one year, return, one year share price returns 15%. I mean, that pretty much makes it, with the exception of the Dow Jones, world's best market this year. Yeah, it's done, it's done incredibly well. Um, but within that, if you look at the constituents, it's been dragged higher by a set of outperformance that have outperformed the mean quite strongly. So I think it's about a third of companies uh, outperform the average. And some of them uh, are bigger players that, because of the market capitalization effect, dragged that, um, that um, overall return higher. So the key being the miners. So they, obviously they've had an absolutely brilliant year this year. Um, and some of them, you know, are up kind of multiples of their value. So it's really... Um, been very strong if you've been in certain areas of the market but some of our readers who aren't as heavily exposed to the commodities might look at that overall return and be like well what happened to me this year because there are some aspects of the economy especially following the kind of fallout from the brexit uh, vote that have suffered domestic banks for example domestic um, financials domestic financials some of the um, kind of importer and retailers and we've seen more of that in the results section this week. Some of the pressures on companies like Carpet Right, Dixon's Carphone, Sports Direct. Yeah, let's have a quick chat about about some of those results. I mean, let's start with those those retailers um, because uh, I think this is the week we've also released our retail podcast that Harriet Russell has put together. Yes. Um, so yeah, that have a listen to that because you'll get some of the sort of context and some of the pressures uh, in aggregate that we think that sector is facing uh, and what companies are doing to respond to it. But now we've got some specific examples in the results section this week. I thought Dixon's Carphone's results sounded all right, but the shares didn't respond very well. No, exactly right. That was that was very much a summation of our take on it. Um, obviously, the business that was outside of the UK did well, partly as a um, result of the declining pound against the euro and the Norwegian krona um, in a couple of their markets. But they do have this problem of the kind of not wanting to increase the prices for UK consumers. They're worried um, about the impact that will have. But in the UK and Ireland, um, yeah, electricals did well, what goods, consumer electronics, but there was lower computing revenue. But they are worried about the impact of domestic price rises. So there was actually quite a strongly 
worded cautionary statement, perhaps overly cautious, um, from the chief executive in the statement. So it might be that the market was responding to that caution, responding to the concerns about, um, yeah, that imported inflation and how much the company will be able to pass that on. But yeah, we definitely saw that with uh, carpet right as well and the high price of imported goods weighing on margins. How long are we going to persist with this one? Carpet right. I I don't like this company. I don't. I really don't like this company as as an investment. Uh, I had it on. I was perma sell for me, um, and you know we, we're kind of banking on a recovery that's a refurbishment that seems to be t- an awful long time coming. But there were some signs, perhaps that. Yeah, I mean, it might be happening. It was attributed by the management. They, they had um, a rise. After the end of the sorry, the, after the end of the first half, so the first six weeks of the second half, um, like for like sales were up, um, but they actually fell over the first half. Now that that uptick, which is obviously we should, is a much smaller period, yeah. was attributed by management to the newly refurbished stores. Perhaps you should take that with some caution. Um, but yeah, the shares currently are pretty much an all-time low in terms of the price-to-earnings ratio at the moment. How uh, it's continuing to back the fact that this refurbishment can get some uh, underlying sales growth. But yeah, it doesn't look brilliant um, for a company that is, um, you know, importing, relying on imported goods, which we know is already weighing on margins. So, uh, especially as well when um, I, I cover a company called Victoria, which is um, you know, carpets and floor coverings. And when I spoke to them a few weeks ago, um, <clears throat> the CEO Jeff Wilding was making the point that Victoria, as a company, imports a lot less raw materials than a lot of its competitors. So his his, his suggestion, his claim about his company was that it might not have to implement the sort of amount or, or the size of price increases that rivals might do so maybe carpet rights also struggling against the rivals like that as well so good old-fashioned british carpet then. well and that's how you see a resetting in the um in the in the trade balance right of our country and you're seeing it in action through these companies which i find really interesting you know domestic uh, carpet makers that's what we want isn't it I mean, this is the whole idea this some people want well, it, I mean, <laughs> that's a political question yeah but uh, yeah i mean it depends what you yeah but agnostic of whether it's what we want that's that's the effect that it has and it's quite interesting to see it's coming through and obviously you can see just in the one-year share prices for some of these companies that those kind of importers have been hurt by that now we'll have to see one that sterling has been kind of passed through over the year um that will be really interesting to see how much they are managing to pass on to customers whether they have the ability to do so whether there's other kind of cost-cutting measures that they can take um but it's, it's difficult i mean company like sports direct we've just seen with jd sports the the way that they try and economize has a real impact on the workers in their in their country you know and sports are one of the things that hurt it in its uh, half year results where i think they kind of described it as investment in people but that was very much remedying you know it's a kind of weasel words in some ways because that was rem- remedying many of the problems that we've seen with seen with this company yeah, jd's been sucked into this now as well this whole warehousing staffing issue yes yeah, so we've just had a statement from jd sports today it was a channel four undercover investigation very similar um stressing things like the amount of times that workers have to wait in queues and then saying that effectively it looks like some of the workers were being paid below uh, the statutory minimum wage because of the time they were spending in the queue there was also the question of them having a kind of fire on the spot and a um, three strikes and you're out policy now jd sports has said we don't have those policies so there's 
obviously a disconnect, but they are launching an investigation into that particular facility to see what's kind of going on there. But they've been presented with the full fact. I think this is going to be another theme if we're kind of summing up this year and looking at next year. I think companies, especially retailers, treatment of their workers is going to be very important on two things. I think one is on, yeah, their treatment of the factory workers within this country. And we've seen Sports Direct, JD Sports. I'm sure there'll be more and how they deal with that. But another is the, um, the Modern Slavery Act that came into force this year and companies looking at how they source um, labour from overseas. Now, some of the practices of those intermediaries in those markets that sort out the labour for our kind of garment sellers, um, they some of their practices, the sharper practices, are now defined as kind of modern slavery. And it's something that I know the Prime Minister is reported to be quite uh, um, passionate about eradicating this. So I think you might see some pressure on companies around what's going on in the supply chain, as well as what's going on in their kind of yeah, domestic operations. Well, we did see this in the food industry a few years back when you had uh, sort of gangmasters, you know, the old uh, winklers out in Morecambe Bay. And one of them, I think one of them was killed, weren't they? One of them was drowned and kind of brought this into focus and it's kind of disappeared again. But yeah, it, must, it, it, it will be, you know, omnipresent in many sectors of the UK. What makes it very difficult for our readers is that yeah, something comes out about JD Sports, it looks very bad, the share price goes down. I don't know how the share price can be expected to price in whatever's going to happen to JD Sports as a result of this coming out. I mean, how I just, do you grade reputational damage? But it's quite hard to then make a call. Some people say that's a great buy signal, bad headlines, they'll sort it out, great reason to get into the stock. But we were just discussing earlier, there are other companies where, you know, that's been the tip of the iceberg uh, and then it's, you know, declined. Sports Direct's a good example. You yeah, know. But, but, you know, we, but we kind of, pretty in our coverage, have, have, have kind of separated the kind of Sports Direct and its practices from the, from a lot of the other retailers and then you start seeing it creeping into the other retailers. Now, how far does it extend? Is any retailer free from, from these kind of practices? So, you know, you, you, you must start to worry about the whole sector exactly. and, and you know this goes back to to a bigger thing i think is you know is it just a retail thing that actually companies are going to face a lot more pressure to pay properly uh to you know bring staff to the national living wage we know that's that's affected staff in the in the hospitality industry you know all this pressure on companies to to, to actually behave as they should um could have the effect of raising wages across the board which has an inflationary effect more generally um which which has an effect on eroding the profits of many of these companies so actually this kind of all sounds like good news for workers but bad news generally for shareholders and there's a little side story to that which is that the there's a kind of review of the auto enrollment pension reforms and what most people in that industry have been trying to pressure companies to do is to pay people to up the statutory minimums when it comes to pension contributions um and that that's going to be really important because if they up that, that could be a big yeah impact on margins for businesses across the board as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it, tricky times. Tricky times. We had a new, uh, uh, well, a new company. It's been on the market uh, a little while now, uh, but first results: Hollywood Bowl. Yeah, listed. Uh, that share price looks good. <clears throat> it does look good, doesn't it? Yeah, um, it listed in September, <clears throat> as it says on the tin. Bowling. I love bowling. Do you? No. I know a man who does, though. Hey, Dom, over the control room. I do love bowling. Go on, tell us. A couple of years ago at All Star Lanes in Brick Lane, I got the top score for the second quarter of the year, 272. I think my top score in bowling is about 100. <laughs> if I hit three figures, I'm ecstatic. I genuinely don't know what happened. Did you um, have the rails up? I 
I did not. Yeah, I think you had the rails. I did not have the rails. And I think up. you had that little device you roll the ball down at the beginning as well. <laughs> yeah, I reckon you're right. Anyway, okay, so we're never having a bowling Christmas party or office party. Uh, thank you, Dom. Um, but anyway, Hollywood Bowl, people still bowl. People still bowl. I can't, it's unbelievable. I thought I that was a fad when it came out, out you know, sort of 30, 40 years ago. It's still UK. going. Um, it's, it's quite, um, it's a relatively fragmented industry. I mean, Hollywood Bowl actually has a 33% market share in the UK. And I was speaking to the um, chief executive, Stephen Burns, and he was, I asked him about sort of M&A and the prospects for it in the sector. And he said, actually, they bought um, a company called Bowlplex at the back end of last year. And that they bought 16 sites. They actually had to get rid of six because the CMA, the Competition of the Markets Authority, was became interested. So, Yeah, they're not interested in huge consolidation of, uh, of, no. of telecoms industries, but <laughs> well, they are. sell those six bowling lanes. <laughs> yeah, <this is> our- <laughs> they are interested in that. But yeah, I mean, basically the, the point being that uh, you know, another big sort of deal in this sort of bowling sector is unlikely. Yes, there'll be the odd sort of single or you know, sort of low single digit site um, acquisitions but i think hollywood bowl is largely trying to grow through um you know organic growth it's investing in its sites it's refurbishing them um things like um taking ownership of the the food offering i mean i, I actually said to mr burns that my memory as a kid is the food there was like a terrible sort of wimpy burger or something and no, no no such thing as a terrible wing, wimpy burger i beg your pardon no, <laughs> a terrible whatever burger but anyway <clears throat> they've, they've brought the food offering in-house they're in control of it they're thinking that's quite an important thing investing more in this sort of amusement things that are in there as well so bistro bowling Potentially, yeah, exactly. So those sort of things are, you know, sort still of, won't get me in there. I have to say. <laughs> so those sorts of things are sort of organic drivers of the stock. I mean, we've we've left it on a hold for now. I think eighteen times forward earnings sort of rates is a fair rating for the company. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll see how it does. As, as we said, it's a, a new one on the AIM market. Yeah, uh, sorry, a new one on the main market. Main market, indeed, indeed. Um, let's talk about uh, while, while you're on the mic, Bradley uh, Fife. This is this is a tip of the year come good, not this year, the year no, before. Prior years, my my predecessor Julia Bradshaw tips this on the prospects of it potentially being a takeover target, and um, my time writing about it actually has been many of the stories have involved Fife taking over something else. Most recently, mushroom companies in Canada. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, Fife has now become um, a target of a takeover bid. Um, it's an all-cash offer, and it's uh, from memory, it's a 49% premium to the share price prior to the, the news of the takeover um, you know, being on the horizon. So we've sort of suggested that you know, it's, worth, it's worth taking this. It seems like a very good deal, even though the, sort of, the Fife's business looked very healthy in itself. It was making acquisitions, diversifying from fruit into vegetables. Um, good company. But yeah, the deal does look chunky and as you can see from the um the tip update piece there the share price change since our tip i think that is is up 137 percent. so not bad not bad not bad we do get them right from time to time and we're actually working on tips of the year now for uh, the first issue of next year which i think is oh well, it's the first week in january yep. can't remember the date <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so the same format there'll be takeover tips ideas and, and such like um so yeah well, let's hope we uh, we pick a good one in that segment again. I'm actually writing it, so... Oh, the take... Uh, oh, right. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously not going to say who it is. Say no more. But, yeah. say no, well, you can't go wrong at the moment. Everything's being taken over. We've got E2V <laughs> on the same page here, which is being taken over. I hope I don't live to regret that that phrase. Uh, can't go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not, not often said on stock markets, is it? Um, okay, so we've barely scratched the surface of the this 104-page magazine. 
but uh, we've, we've run out of time. Lots more in, uh, in the magazine this week. Uh, Algie Hall has reviewed uh, his, his sock screens for the year to see how he's gone. It's been a difficult year, actually, uh, for mechanical strategies, but uh, that is the nature of the game. Uh, Sex Focus, which you've written as well, Bradley. Food. I did. Food fads. All good companies, these, actually. I like, uh, I've always liked this sector. It's really interesting. There's, there's a lot of um, you know, the, the consumer sort of desire for free-from ingredients or healthy foods, but yeah. tasting the same, that being the important thing, is, is a, a growing, growing thing. And there are lots of companies, as I mentioned in my sector focus piece, who are poised to benefit from that. Yeah, I noticed you mentioned Glambia, which I always liked. That's uh, you know, muscle-building power. Yeah, it's more it? focused on like protein-based uh, exercise enhancing, you know, not exercise enhancing, diet enhancing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Kerry. And Lyle, I mean, uh, moving and Pure Circle moving. In fact, Kerry and Tate and Lyle have moved from commodity businesses to focus on on these these ingredients. Indeed, Pure Circle is an ingredients business. Yeah. So, no, I think it's a fascinating sector and uh, well timed for Christmas as we go away and stuff ourselves with all sorts of unhealthy exactly. goodies. Um, yeah, uh, as I say, forty pages of uh, of uh, features. I'm not even going to go into them. Oh, yeah, we've got an exclusive as well, Bradley is reminding me, um, on uh, a recent, another takeover, uh, Sierra Rutile, where uh, it seems the FCA, uh, we discovered, is scrutinising some trades uh, in that miner uh, just before the deal was reconfirmed. It's a bit of a strange one, this. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts to the story, so just, I wanted to sort of um, flag it on the podcast so people are aware of it. But yeah, it's definitely worth a read. There's some great work by um, by Alex Newman there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, lots of comment, four pages from Simon, on uh, his, his small cap uh, strategies uh, and views for the year ahead. A double page spread from Bearble at his gloomiest. Um, and obviously lots in the personal finance and funds section, uh, as well as everything they produce for the uh, for the main features, which they will be talking about tomorrow, I presume, on their podcast. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you, Bradley. Uh, thank you, Ian. Got any, any nice plans for Christmas? Going down to Devon. Lovely. Yeah. I'll be in Kent, not quite as beautiful as Devon. And I'll be in Essex, which is the most beautiful of the lot. <laughs> um, so anyway, thank you all for listening uh, throughout the year. Thank you for reading the magazine. This one will be on sale for two weeks, as I say, £5.95. Uh, in all good news ages, invest in style. Other than that, all I have to say is Merry Christmas to all of you. Have a, have a wonderful holiday and we'll be back in the new year. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.